Check, check, one, two. Hello. Ah, oh, there we go. Check, one, two. Is it okay? Yeah, check, one, two. There we go. There's a demon in that thing. We need to cast it out. So, <laughs> all right. All right. All right, we'll press restart. Let's read uh, Psalm 8 again here. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. In the beginning sentence of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote this statement. He said, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So our wisdom, if it's to be solid wisdom, needs two parts, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. It's really in knowing God that we truly know ourselves. In order to know yourself rightly, you must consider yourself in relationship to God. And that's exactly what Psalm chapter 8 does for us. It highlights for us the glory of God and then explains for us the purpose of man and God's plan for man on the earth. And it shows us a right view of humanity. A psalm, it gives us a glorious view of God and a biblical worldview of man. It focuses on God and the praise that is due to him, yet it teaches us our worth and purpose in God's creation. It connects our view of ourselves with our view of God. This psalm, as you probably recognize, is bracketed with these two statements that are really identical. O Yahweh, or O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's a, a, a way, a formula that the Hebrew writers would use to bracket something to show the significance of it, the importance of it. And so that's the theme of this psalm, that first and last verse. And then in, in between shows us how that's going to work itself out. And so in order to have a proper view of yourself, you must consider yourself in relationship to God. If we look at man, and we look at man apart from God, there's two things that we could potentially fall into, two errors. If we look at man apart from God, we could either diminish man or deify man. We could have too high of a view of man or too low a view of man if we disconnect our view of man from our view of God. And Psalm 8 helps us to not only view ourselves as depraved, which is true, but as dignified, as dignified. There's another level at which the psalm works and the wonder of this psalm. This is kind of a lightning rod psalm. It connects in so many places of course, all Scripture is God-breathed. Uh, some passages are so connected, though, to other places. And this is one of those psalms. It's one that you want to have in your, in your pocket, uh, a good understanding of, because it, it helps you to go to so many different places and even understand the storyline of Scripture. We, we might put it this way. If we were talking big picture, we might say, what is the purpose of all things? It's the glory of God. What is the main theme of the Bible? I think there's a strong case to be made that the main theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. 
God's kingdom. And that's going to be spoken of in this chapter. And then how does God work out that plan for his glory? And the vehicles by which God accomplishes that, we learn in scripture, is through the covenants that God makes with his creatures. And so you have these three themes, and really, you can, you can make connections to all three of those in this psalm. The psalm begins and ends with the glory of God, as all of our lives should. It bracketed, hemmed in by the glory of God as its purpose. And that's what the psalm does. And then he talks about what God's purpose is for man, to rule and to reign and have dominion. And yet we know that because of Adam's sin, that man cannot successfully rule and reign as God intended him to, and thus the need for redemption, and thus the need for these covenants that God makes, of which David is a prime recipient of one of these covenants, and he's the author of this psalm. And it's really the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant fulfills all the covenants. They bring them all to pass. One writer said it's, it's like uh, the ring to rule them all, like in Lord of the Rings. Like if you rule the Davidic covenant, you, rule all the, you bring to pass all of the covenants. And so we have David writing the psalm here about man. And David even perceives himself in this psalm to be sort of a, another Adam or another one in the line of, of bringing, uh, like Adam, this rule on the earth, this dominion on the earth. But he knows there's another who will come and fulfill it completely. And so there's so much in this psalm to, to look at. And we hope to, to do that in the, in the time we have and to just expose you to the glory of this psalm as it brings together these various truths. So let's jump into the teaching of the text. First, we want to look at the need to acknowledge the inescapable majesty of God. Acknowledge the inescapable majesty of God. That's our first point. We see that in verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 9. We said that these are, the psalm is bracketed, so the way we have to look at it is kind of bringing these all together. As we acknowledge God's inescapable majesty, I want you to notice first that what, what David points out, that God's glory is everywhere. God's glory is everywhere. It says, oh Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalm begins and ends with this declaration of praise to God for his greatness. Verse 1, verse 9. And notice how David addresses God. ESV has, O Lord, our Lord. So that first Lord is in all capital letters. The second one, um, capital L, and then lowercase O-R-D. And that is a way that the English translators uh, show a distinction in what name is being used in Hebrew. So when it's capital L-O-R-D, all caps, it's the covenant name Yahweh. And the uh, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is the word for Adonai. What is the difference between those? Well, we've said this before, but just by way of review, uh, Yahweh is the covenant name, the special name that God gave to Israel and to his people to know him by. Uh, it's, it's most especially explained in uh, Exodus 3, verse 14, as the burning bush uh, episode, at the burning bush episode for Moses. God says, I am that I am. I am that I am. And that's where we get that, that title, I am. And it's really, that is the, the name Yahweh. It just really translated. It has this idea of self-existence built into it and God's presence. So if you're thinking about two concepts that relate to Yahweh. It's that he is the self-existent God. If you say, what is your name? And you say, I am. It's like, I exist. And the idea is God has always existed and he doesn't derive his existence from somewhere else. He is his own existence. Uh, God's existence is part of his essence. And that is different than any other creature in humanity. Uh, we, we might have an, an essence of what makes us what we are, but existence is not a part of that because we can exist or not exist, but God cannot not exist. <laughs> he has to exist. It's part of his very essence. If you say, if you're describing who God is, the very definition of the true God is that he exists of himself. And that's what Yahweh really gets at. But it also gets at the presence of God with his people. Is this a covenant name that he makes with them? And so we might say it refers to his eternal presence and his eternal existence. Really who God is fundamentally. And then this word, our Lord, Adonai, it's a title. It really has the idea of our sovereign or our king. Uh, it is what God's role is, what his role is. And that's interesting because here he begins by saying, speaking about who God is and what God's role is, 
And then in the middle, he's going to talk about who man is and what man's role is in the middle section of this psalm. Now, he, he, he addresses God's titles, his, or his, his name and his title, and then he says, how majestic is your name in all the earth? It's a word for majesty, majestic. Here's some synonyms. Excellent, glorious, famous, mighty, wide, great, high, noble, splendid, magnificent. One writer said it's a display of power that is awe-inspiring and even intimidating. And this majesty is related to God's name, his name. It refers to the excellencies of God's character. If, you, if you, someone says your name and they, they say, hey, Robert, oh, do you know Robert? And you're like, which one? Right? And you narrow it down to which one. You start to think of a number of characteristics attributed to that person. And so whoever it is, you say a name and you start to associate uh, qualities with that person that you've learned about them. And so that's why, you know, sometimes if to be able to say name, you have to distinguish. And so you, you, they say, oh, no, I'm talking about this one. And then you start to think of these qualities, whereas they say, oh, no, actually, I was talking about this one. You start to think of different qualities. Maybe there's some overlap, but you distinguish them. Well, when we talk about God's name, it's what you think about when you hear his name. It is, what do you think about when you think about God? That's the idea. God's name, his, his character, his essence, his name really is, is a summary of all that the scriptures portray him to be. It's what you're supposed to think about when you think about God, his character, his excellencies. So his name is majestic. So when you think about his name, who he is, you think of majesty. He is majestic. And his majesty is in all the earth. It's, it's everywhere. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So it is God's creation that showcases his glory. It shows it off. If a musician's stage is a concert hall, an athlete's stage is a stadium, a chef's stage is a kitchen, God's stage is the universe. Everywhere, he puts his majesty on display. And he says then, you have set your glory above the heavens. So while creation bears witness to God's glory, his significance, weightiness, majesty, yet it cannot fully express his greatness. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27 says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. God's glory cannot be fully manifested in creation, though it is truly manifested in creation. So God's glory is everywhere. We also see in these first verses that God's glory is obvious. It's obvious. He says, verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David moves from the loftiness of the heavens to the lowliness of an infant. Really from the macro to the micro. This verse, though, sounds a little out of place, a little confusing. You're like, now we're talking about babies? What's going on here? It, but it is a, it's a contrasting uh, comparison. You have, as one person said, babies and bad guys, <laughs> infants and infidels, toddlers and tyrants in verse 2. What's the point? Well, at a, at, a, at a high level, the point is God uses the praise of the weak to silence those who seem to be strong. The weakest of the weak are used to silence those who seem strong. Or as one writer said, what seems inconsequential has overwhelmed what is mighty. You have to be an adult to reject what seems obvious from creation. <laughs> like take evolution. Kids just don't buy it. They have to be indoctrinated into this. They look around, they go, yeah, someone made this. You know, it's obvious that this is true. It takes work to convince children that everything came out of nothing from no one and just appeared on the scene in order. Children see what is obvious around them, that God created the world. Got children see what's obvious around them, and they often just say it, even if you're not, you're not supposed to say that, even if it's true. You know, it's like uh, kids do that, but they see that this obvious God created the world. And so it is very obvious that God's glory is on display. Though the plea, through the pleas and the praise of the weakest, God then defeats his enemies. And, and so 
this passage is highlighting this contrast. And it's picked up in Matthew 21, verse 16, and quoted there uh, in an interchange between some of the religious leaders and Jesus. And it's the contrast of these children's receiving of Jesus and the religious leader's rejection of him. In Matthew 21, verse 16, we read, And they said to him, uh, well, let's read the prior verse because so it makes sense. Uh, verse 15, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what th these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And he quotes this psalm. In Psalm 8, the infants are praising God. In Matthew 21, they're praising Jesus. One writer said, in Matthew 21, young children speak wisely in contrast to the skepticism of the religious leaders. And so here's this contrast, and God uses these inconsequential to the world to establish strength with those who seem powerful. Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says, sometimes the mightiest weapon in God's arsenal is not argument, nor brilliance, nor eloquence, nor philosophy, but praise. And the humblest believer can use it. That's a good word. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I, I don't know enough. I'm not articulate enough. I'm not, you know, smooth enough to, to talk to people or argue with people about, you know, this or that. And this is just a great reminder that you know, praise will do. All you need to do is praise. All you need to do is highlight who God is as he's revealed himself to you in his word and just tell out who God is. I mean, this is the most effective apologetic to just believe the scriptures and assume that they're true because they are and, and, and tell people the gospel because God is going to use the truth of his word and the praise of his people to overcome the stubbornness of those who are unbelieving. This is the way God works. 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, there's something else that may be going on here that I just want to point out and let you think about as I continue to think about it. I, I came across something James Hamilton in a commentary pointed out that this enemy in verse 2, to still the enemy, is in the singular. And it's actually related to the word for enmity that is found in Genesis 3, verse 15, that God will put enmity between your seed and her seed as he speaks to Satan. And since it's in the singular, Hamilton suggests this may be a reference to the ultimate enemy, to Satan, and thus an allusion to Genesis 3, 15. He writes this. He says, the singular enemy referenced in Psalm 8, 2 could be the primal enemy.
inherent dignity of mankind. You see this in verses three to not or three to eight. Now, for a psalm that is focused on the majesty of God, this psalm talks a lot about man and God's purposes for man. Yet the emphasis is that one of the aspects of God's majesty in his creation is that of man as his image bearer and the one who will rule on his behalf. And what we see in these middle verses, verses 3 to 8, is both the insignificance and the significance of man. And so it's a great balance that is struck by David. Notice first that you might say in verses 3 to 4, the stars reveal the smallness of man. And then we will see in the remaining verses, the scriptures reveal the significance of man. Let's first consider that the stars reveal the smallness of man. Verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? <coughs> David is under the night sky, and he, he sees these stars and the moon, and he begins to contemplate them. It makes you think of uh, Abraham under the night sky, contemplating the stars, counting the stars as God makes it, ratifies a covenant with them in Genesis 15. David is specifically focused on the moon and the stars at night here, God's night lights for mankind. He's placed the moon and the stars in their places perfectly. He says, these, these are the work of your fingers. Don't you love that? Work of your fingers. I just thought about playing with Legos, building like a Lego thing. It's like, the work, you got to use your fingers. They're like, some of the things are so small. And to put these things together, and it's just, it's so tiny in comparison. Of course, God doesn't have fingers. He's a spirit. But here's a way to speak of a number of things. Probably the vastness of God and the craftsmanship of God. As he creates these things, these massive bodies. It's a way of showing how miniature creation is to the creator. And yet, to us, the universe is beyond comprehension. I mean, it's the work of his fingers, but to us, we look out, and now we have telescopes, we can look out and see just the massive cosmos. One writer said, uh, if the Milky Way, I'm kind of confused this, and it was, I, mean, I don't know how they come up with an illustration like this, but I like it, it kind of makes it feel small. It says this, if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, they got that, Milky Way galaxy, where we are, uh, where the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system, would fit in a coffee cup. And the Milky Way is one of perhaps 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. <laughs> so our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, put our solar system in a coffee cup oh, in North America. That's crazy. I mean, that's insane. We, we've enjoyed uh, just looking up at the stars a number of nights and, uh, and gazing out, just seeing you know, the longer you're out there with lights off, the more stars appear. And then the more stars appear, and more stars appear as your, light adjust, as your eyes adjust to the light. And it's just incredible. I wonder what you think when you look out at the stars at times. Here's what David contemplates He says, What is man? What is man? I mean, it's like he's saying, what a God, <laughs> really. He's contemplating the, the smallness of man, the insignificance when compared to the vastness of the universe around us. Even what David uses for man shows the weakness and insignificance of man. Verse 4, what is man? It's the word enosh, enosh. It's actually one of the names in those early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 4.26. It's related to the term that's used in uh, Genesis, uh, or, sorry, Jeremiah 79 about being desperately sick. It's like weak, it's like weakly. Uh, this idea of weakness built into this term. And then he says, or the son of man, or the son of Adam, Adam. Adam's the name for man. From the dust is the idea. It's like desperately sick and from the dust. What is man? What is this weak man that you are mindful of him? What is this son of dust that you care for him? How small and significant man seems in viewing the stars and the vastness of 
galaxies. And yet, wonder of wonders, God is mindful of him. God is mindful of him, it says. It means he's involved. He cares about his creatures. So what we learn in 1 Peter 5, 7. God cares for you. God cares for you. God doesn't have to be made to care like false gods do. Have to do all kinds of stuff so that they care about you, do something about it. God cares inherently for his creatures. Down to sparrows. Where says, this is really an exclamation, what a God, instead of what is man? And just how incredible. Consider how vast the universe is and what a small speck our planet is in the vastness. And let alone we ourselves, even smaller, it makes us question our own significance. And many have sought to answer this question. Uh, many look at the skies and ask that same question. They're, they're not coming from a biblical worldview, and they address it in various ways. What is the significance of the universe? What is it our place in the universe? So let's summarize a number of different categories uh, and how this is thought of. We have the scientist who says man is an accident. The, the pagan says man is a slave. The humanist says man is alone. The nihilist says man is trash. The Bible says man is cared for and man is king. Man is cared for and man is king. Your significance comes from God. You are not just another animal. The Bible gives a gradation of value uh, such that inanimate things, lowest, uh, plants and animals, a little more, and then we have animals themselves, and then man is more valuable than animals. And of course, you look at Jonah for that. You know, you're concerned about this work, this uh, this plant, right? They grew up with all these people, or and even the animals, right? That's what that's what God says to Jonah. So Jonah's really concerned about plant, but not so much about the animals and the people of Nineveh. It's like totally messed up. He's got it completely flip flop. And, and so we see the the Bible gives us significance in a way like nothing else does. If evolution is true, then you have no significance. And there's really no difference between your, the molecules in your body and the molecules in that chair, or the molecules of some animal, or, or anything else. It's just certain molecules bouncing against other <laughs> molecules. If it's just materialism. But, in fact, you do have value because you're in God's image. You therefore have a derived glory from God. And here's where we balance now the dignity and the depravity of man. Yes, man is fallen and sinful and corrupted in every aspect of his being, and yet he still retains his dignity of man. It's been said that the image of God was not erased after the fall, but it was certainly effaced. It was marred in, in a way, yet not lost. Christ's death for you is not an indication of how valuable you are, but rather how valuable Christ is and how sinful you are. Yet, your value is to be found in being created in God's image, something that brings God glory nevertheless because, in fact, it is God's image in you that you then have this derived glory and value and worth. How does David know that he has worth and value? Is he just asserting it? Well, David has revelation. He has a word from God. That's how he knows. You could say, because the Bible tells me so. David knows the value of humanity because God has revealed it. God has said it. And so we stand on this well. Uh, during my doctoral studies, I got to meet uh, and become friends with another guy in our program named Jeff Williams. And he was uh, an astronaut uh, for NASA. And he, I don't know if he still holds the record, but for a long time he held the record for uh, the longest time in space for an American male on the International Space Station. So the guy spent a lot of time in space. He, he, uh, he wrote a book uh, where he took a lot of photographs from space from the ISS and uh, put them into a book and uh, from a Christian perspective on just highlighting the glory and majesty of God. And uh, he, we, of course, uh, all of us seem so, so silly uh, in, our, in his class as we were like, oh, an astronaut. And so we're asking all of our, like, all of our questions, and they were really dumb at first, and then we started to get more sophisticated as time went on. But uh, he, we asked him, like, what, 
what do people ask you uh, a lot as, a, as an astronaut? And he said, well, if it's a Christian, or people that are, you know, you know, more spiritual, I guess you could say, whatever that means, uh, he said, he often gets asked this question. He says, do you feel closer to God up there in space? Or has the experience changed your faith or belief in God? He gets asked that a lot. And he says, no. He says, no, it doesn't. And here's what he says. He has this quote in his book. I think it's really good. He says, quote, over the years of studying the Bible, I have grown both in awe of it and in complete trust in it as the source of the truth of reality, wisdom, and all things necessary for life. I have also come to realize we cannot know about God by viewing creation irrespective of our vantage point. In other words, whether you're on earth or whether you're in space, it is only through the revelation of God in the scriptures that we can actually become close to him in relationship and actually know him. This is God's most profound, gracious provision to us. No, my experiences as an astronaut did not bring me closer to God or change my beliefs about his existence. My relationship with God does not hinge on my looking at earth from orbit and experiencing that small whisper that is so evident in creation. True, life-transforming faith in God and relationship with him is based not on a whisper, but a shout. The shout of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his work on the cross, as revealed in the supernatural revelation of the Bible. So my closeness to God in relationship with him is through faith in the person and work of Christ. I mean, don't you love that that's on a bookshelf somewhere, maybe in Barnes and Noble? <laughs> and... Uh, they were like, whoa, and now start taking pictures, and they come across that, and they read that, and like, oh, so cool. Uh, I love it, yeah. So what a great answer, though. It's like, yes, there's a lot that the, the creation reveals to us, but not enough, not enough to truly know God. General revelation shows, in a part, the insignificance of man, because we see our smallness, it's not all it reveals, but special revelation shows us the significance of man. Put another way, the stars reveal the smallness of man, the scriptures reveal the significance of man. And that's what we see in these uh, other these final verses, in verses 6 to 8. Look there. You have given him dominion, verse 6, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This is really fascinating. I mean, I, I tend to read a lot of commentaries through the week to help me understand a passage and compare my ideas. And, uh, and I've never come across a, a commentary that's inspired, though, that's like always right. You know, there's always something they get wrong or whatever. Um, they're just kind of the opinions of men. But here's an inspired commentary that is right. I mean, Psalm 8 is a commentary on Genesis 1, uh, specifically 1 26 to about 28. It's, it's referencing that and commenting on it and giving further insight into it. Of course, Hebrews 2 is a commentary on Psalm 8 and Genesis 1. It's like a commentary within a commentary. Uh, and so it's like the movie Inception. It's like a dream and a dream and a dream. You know? And here's a, 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 a passage and a passage and a passage. And so it's really fascinating here to see David comment on his understanding of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Verses focus on the high point of God's creation, of man. It shows the dignity that man possesses. Verse 5 shows us that we have a derived glory. We have a derived glory. You have a derived glory as a creature. Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Where does your value come from? You come from your height, your weight, your grades, your friends, your work, your possessions, your abilities, your intellect. No, your, your value comes from God's glory, from the glory of God in man, making him in the image of God. It says that God has made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings, as ESP has it. Yet, he has crowned him with glory and honor. These words, glory and honor, typically are reserved for God in the Psalms especially, but here they apply to man in a derivative sense. Glory really has the idea of man's dignity and his importance. Uh, it speaks to God appointing man, Adam in particular, as what we would call 
technically a vice regent, one to rule on God's behalf over his creation. In the ancient Near East, they discovered that there were various pillars that were set up that were called images, and they were to show a king's domain, an earthly king setting up these images to show that this was part of his domain, his rule was here. And but God doesn't have like physical, uh, you know, statues like that. He has living statues that are His image that show His rule over an area. And so He creates Adam and Eve to rule as His image over the creation. It's part of God's purpose for man. So you don't earn this glory or maintain it by your performance. This glory is derived from God and is inherent in man. It's a gift from God. So you have a derived glory, verse 5, but you also have a dominion glory, verses 6 to 8. In the beginning of verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've given him dominion. This language of royalty and kingly language. God desired me to co-rule the creation on his behalf. And it's God's representative to rule the earth. And so God has delegated his authority to man in this way. The rule and mandate that God gave man in Genesis 1 to rule and subdue the earth has not changed since the fall. It remains the same. And just to show you how closely parallel these are, if you want to look at Genesis 1, I'm going to read it, verse 26 to 28, you'll see how the psalmist is picking up on it, how David is picking up on this. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives them all these plants and to, to eat and live off of, exercise dominion over as well. And so this is what God's original intent was, and yet Adam falls, Adam sins, and yet the question remains, does this change God's purpose and plan for man to rule and reign on the earth? No, it doesn't. Psalm 8 reiterates this is still God's plan. God has still given him, man, a dominion glory. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. The realm over which man is to reign is the earth. Psalm 115, verse 16 says this, 115, 16. The heavens are Yahweh's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. God intends man to rule over this creation. Steward it well for him. So the curse doesn't cancel the creation mandate, as it's often called, but it's corrupted the earth and man and made it frustrating and difficult to fulfill. So Psalm 8 then comes along and reiterates the kingly role of humans in ruling over the creation even after the fall. And this is built into us. Uh, even children, you can look and see in them this desire to exercise dominion over their little section of the creation, right? They collect and order things like rocks and animals and bugs. Uh, they order their toys by size or color. I mean, you hope they do, you know, in the room. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes if they're like trying to figure stuff out, but they build box, uh, box houses and, and castles and, and uh, show their dominion in small ways. Of course, mankind in general has done many things that have been great accomplishments in the world in medicine, in exploration, in travel, in communication, in food, in technology, in science, and just incredible developments. And that's an evidence of this purpose of God in man to exercise dominion over the creation. And yet, because of the fall, mankind has also used those same abilities to do some terrible things. Chemical weapons or atomic weapons to create massive destruction upon the earth. So the fundamental point is that man has been given this dominion authority by God over the creation to rule over it successfully for God. And yet, because of the fall, man cannot successfully accomplish this purpose. He cannot accomplish this purpose alienated to God. He must be rightly related to God in order to fulfill this successfully. 
know, this is helpful for us. It reminds us that God has given us stewardship over the creation. And you have your little dominion area of, of the world uh, that he has given to you as a stewardship. And we're to exercise that faithfully. It should impact the way we think about school, work, home, as stewards, ruling on God's behalf for his glory. And we're to remember as well, uh, as one writer said, human power is always bounded and surrounded by divine praise. Doxology gives dominion, its context, and legitimacy. It's in the context of praising God that we then uh, are to exercise this authority over the creation. So, this is Psalm 8. This is Psalm 8. We see here that, that we are to acknowledge the inescapable majesty of God and then appreciate the inherent dignity of mankind. But don't close your Bibles yet. <laughs> One other point I want to make and sneak in here uh, is the final point that we ought to adore the ideal Son of Man. There's more in this psalm than just saying God has given dominion to man in general. There's more here that ties us into other passages of Scripture and helps us understand the big storyline of the Bible. Because right now, we don't see everything subjected to man. We don't see everything under man's feet. Right now, uh, a lot of things are against man. I mean, we're fighting back the, the curse. This is, we're not seeing God's original intentions completely fulfilled. So the question is, will they ever be fulfilled? The answer is yes, but how? How does a successful reign of man on the earth occur? How does it come about? Are we supposed to enact that now? Something, something that will come in the future? How do we see this accomplished? We already saw that Genesis, or something looks backwards to Genesis 1, but it also looks forward to other passages as well. Pick up on these themes as well, develop it further. If you go forward to Daniel chapter 7, it's very fascinating, and it makes you realize that the biblical authors read each other's works and further developed it, uh, because in Daniel chapter 7, I mean, there's no way we could read this, so I have to just summarize it, uh, and you can go read it later. The, the passage begins, Daniel 7 begins, with a vision that Daniel gets of four beasts coming out of the sea. And these beasts represent four different earthly kingdoms that have dominion. Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, and, and these beasts come out and exercise dominion. But then, the next scene shifts to the Ancient of Days, God, on his throne. And one uh, uh, comes before the Ancient of Days, and it's the Son of Man. One like a Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. And what does the Ancient of Days do for this Son of Man? Well, he gives him a kingdom. It says in verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Same language. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. Does something sound familiar here? So you have a bunch of beasts and a son of man among these beasts who's given authority over them. That's not like Genesis 1. Adam's in the garden, a bunch of beasts surrounding him, and Adam's giving dominion over all those beasts. And so now these future kingdoms that Daniel's predicting are portrayed like beasts, exercising authority, and one like a son of man, the Messiah, is going to exercise authority as a new Adam over those kingdoms. But then it gets even more interesting because later in the chapter, in verse 26 of Daniel 7, it says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, this future ruler, shall be taken away and uh, to be consumed and destroyed in the end. And then it says in verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion, same kind of language, kingdom and dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to, think, like, oh, the Son of Man. No, the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So, like, which one is it? Is it the Son of Man, this individual, who reigns and has authority? Or is it the saints who have this authority? The answer is yes, right? It's both. So even in the Old Testament, you have this indication that it's both an individual man and corporate man rightly related to God who will rule on the earth. That's set up for us in seed form in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, the righteous humanity, and the seed of the serpent, the unrighteous humanity. Uh, we'll, 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 you have this corporate reality that is predicted, but then you have one, an individual, a he who will come from the seed of the woman, an individual man who will destroy the 
individual Satan and his work. And so you have both the individual and the corporate in Genesis 3.15. You have it in Psalm 8 as well. You have it in Daniel 7 as well. And so it's building, 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 building. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And this book of Hebrews greatly exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read this in verse 5 of chapter 2. It says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now notice, it's not talking about the present, it's talking about the world to come, the new heavens and new earth. He's not subjected that to angels of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and I love how the author of Hebrews says that, he's talking about salvation, it's, it's been testified somewhere. If you don't know the passage, you could just say, it's been testified somewhere. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You make him, made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. And then this statement. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, he's saying, remember Psalm 8? Remember what God said there? The Messiah is the one to fulfill that. He's the ultimate man. He's the, the new Adam to fulfill this rule of God. And yet, right now, we don't see everything in subjection to him in fulfillment. So something has not been completely fulfilled, is what he's saying. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what is he doing now? Well, he died to reconcile people to God. That is the prerequisite for them to reign with him. So I mean, Messiah can reign all by himself, but if he's to have that people, the saints, in the end of Daniel 7, reign with him, they have to be called saints, right? How do they become saints? By being reconciled because he takes a death for all those who be his. And so you see this reality that it's the Messiah who reigns, but he allows us to enjoy his reign with him. And he, how does he do that? By reconciling him to himself, by reconciling us to himself, that we might reign with him. Right now we see disorder, dysfunctionality, and death. Rather than humans ruling the world, the, rule, the world rules humans in some ways. But some may will find its culmination, its fulfillment, when the Son of Man returns. To reign on the earth. And this individual and the four people merge together as Messiah reigns and his people reign with him. Michael Block writes this. He says, Man's successful reign over the earth cannot occur while man is estranged from God. But Jesus, the representative of mankind, suffered and tasted death for everyone so that the successful reign of man over the earth can occur. This shows that the cross is related to the coming kingdom. Without the cross, there would be no kingdom. And so the fulfillment of Psalm 8 happens in the future, the world to come, Hebrews 2 5, when all things are subjected to Christ. And so Jesus is the ultimate man, the ultimate Psalm 8 man, who includes us in his reign. This is how the Bible ends Revelation chapter 2. These themes have all been set up, they've all breadcrumbs have been laid, and it all gets pulled together. Revelation 2, 26, he says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, okay, that should sound familiar. We say Psalm 2, and the Messiah rules with a rod of iron. But here it's not saying the Messiah rules with a rod of iron. It's saying those who overcome will rule with a rod of iron. So it's applying the Psalm 2 reign of Messiah to Messiah's people. And so they reign with him. And then go to chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So, Messiah conquers, he sits down on the, on the divine throne, but he's coming to sit on the throne of David, most likely the reference to his throne, and he's going to welcome us to reign with him. And then, of course, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And, when he, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. 
and by your blood you ransomed people for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation. So he's qualified them, then verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So positionally, we're a kingdom, we are priests. But practically, the last part of the verse comes into play in the future. And it says, and they shall, they will reign on the earth. And so believers will reign on the earth, fulfilling Genesis 1, fulfilling Psalm 8, fulfilling Daniel 7. And how will they do it? Because the Messiah, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, the ultimate Psalm 8 man, the son of man, Daniel 7, the one in Hebrews 2 who is ultimate man to fulfill this, who tasted death for everyone so that he could reconcile the people to himself so that they could reign with him on the earth. This is the storyline of scripture. God qualifies us to rightly relate to him so that we can reign with him in the future. When Christ rules, we will rule with him on the earth. And that is where Psalm 8 takes us. And the intention of the psalm is ultimately praise. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How's God going to show his majesty in all the earth? By having man reign on the earth. How's he going to do that? Well, he's going to reconcile them from their sin, and then he's going to have them rule with his son forever. Amen. What a glorious plan. What a great story. This is where things are happening. Let's pray, Father, thank you for this grand story. We could have never come up with this ourselves. It is so glorious. It makes us praise you, see your majesty, and your greatness. And for that, we are thankful. Help us to have perspective in our days and, and where the world is headed. And help us, Lord, to be good stewards of where you've given us right now, to uh, be faithful in those areas and see meaning, a newfound meaning uh, put into the work you've given us to do. Because fundamentally, you've, you've called us to work and you've called us to rule and reign uh, rightly related to you in a way that would please you for your glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Your name is Well, it's saying uh, what is a 